take you for a moment to go back for just a little bit to remind us of really what the book of Romans is all about. So we're going to go back to the book of Romans chapter 1, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. So we're going to get right back to the very, very, very beginning of this. And I want to preach to you a message that I've entitled the gospel. And that's all it is. It's not complicated, but it is a description, I guess, more of the life of a Christian in, as it pertains to the gospel. Now, what, I'm, what I mean by that, you'll understand by the end of it. I, I kind of want to get into it real quick. God gives a man a well-laid plan for the good news of his gospel. He really does. What I want to do on Thursday nights uh, lately, if you've been with us, we've been studying ways of evangelism. And in particular, we, we use a, a particular curriculum for that. And uh, one of the things that, I, that you notice is being able to share the good news with people and how that works and what, what has to happen. What we've learned in, in the course so far is that 150,000 people every day die, most without Christ. They go straight to hell. The problem we have is that, is that we sometimes have this burden of fear in evangelizing. So what I want to do today is to kind of give you something to help us on our Thursday nights, as well as give you that basic plan that God has for delivering His gospel. And I'm going to do that through the first seven verses of chapter 1. So if you've made your way to Romans chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time, please, in reverence and honor the Word of God as we go there now. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this, Paul a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, your precious word that can cause men to follow you that can cause men to be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your word that has the power of salvation behind it. Bless today and help us, Lord. Keep the devil at bay. He desires to, to intervene and to stop us. Lord, we pray for the Holy Spirit to flood this place and dwell us today, that, Lord, we might understand your word a little more clearly and to keep the devil at bay. We love you, Lord, and we give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I tell a story about the preciousness of Jesus like this. There was once a wealthy man who had just a plain and ordinary son, loved his son dearly, had a picture made, a painting, he hung it in his, uh, in his living room. He was very proud of his son. 
One day his son became ill and eventually through the course of that illness passed away. It grieved the man so much. He was heartbroken. At some point in the next few years, he passed away as well. And his estate was being auctioned off, and in accordance with his will, he, he said, I, I'm going to auction off all the art first. And so people came from all over and wanted to, to bid, because he had some fine pieces of art in his, in his house. And the very first piece that came up was his, this picture of his son. And in this picture of his son, it was plain. It was not done by a famous artist or anything like that. It was the first up. And since nobody knew who the artist was, it wasn't really famous. It was just a picture of his son. Nobody bid on it. Finally, one of the servants, the, the butler, came forward and, and he offered up 75 cents. Now, you've got to understand, this was the turn of the, uh, the 19th century. right? It was right after, it was just after the, you know, or just prior to World War I. And... He offered 75 cents for it because it's really all he had. He didn't have a whole lot. And since there were no other bids, the servant received the painting. And as soon as the, the, the servant took ownership of the painting, the auction stopped. And the entirety of the estate was turned over to the servant. Because he loved his son enough to buy the painting. And what's the moral of the story? Well, in like fashion, God has loved his son so much. And he's also loved the servants so much. That's us. And because we love him too, we have the keys to the kingdom, literally. The responsibility then falls upon us to manage what God has given us. And God has given us the gospel. That's the, that's the prize we got when Christ saved us. It's the one thing of true worth that we can, we can never lose, but we can certainly mishandle. So I want to give you the gospel today. I'll give you a couple of things. We all have plans, right? That's kind of what we do. How does God plan to save all of mankind. Now, he could have done it in a lot of different ways. I mean, people are creative. We come up with all kinds of strategies and, and plans and things that we do. And we have this desire to go and do. I, I have lots of plans. My wife will tell you that uh, I, I dream up new plans every day for the house, for the yard, for everything out there in my life uh, that I want to do personally. God has a plan already set down for the progress of salvation of mankind. Now, we have been made ambassadors of Christ for a purpose, and we've been stewards of the gospel. That's the idea. Paul calls himself an apostle. Now, that's not a, an arbitrary word. That is a word for that. They're an apostle, there are certain criteria that have to be met to be an apostle, and Paul fit those criteria. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. We've learned that throughout all of the study of the book of Romans. One of the things that happens, though, in this very first few, this opening paragraph, is Paul decides he's going to lay out the plan of God and the plan for his actual writing of the book of Romans. Now, let me give you some things real quick. I want to give you some scripture to help get us kind of jump-started on this. 
Turn just a couple of chapters ahead in Romans to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. And you'll see really where the heart of the book of Romans is found. It's around right here. Let me just give it to you. And this is the heart of the gospel. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Verse 12 says, They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now the establishment here, let me and keep your place because we're going to read the rest of that passage real quick. The establishment here is that man is inherently sinful. Inher- now, we need to define sin, so I'm going to do that real quick. You don't have to turn there, but 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 says that sin is trespassing of the law. It's, it literally is the breaking of the law the God's, of God's commandments. When we, in our heart, for instance, become so angry that we wish somebody was dead, we've committed murder in our heart already. When we've committed lust in our hearts, we've committed adultery. When we've, I don't know, dishonored your father and mother, when we've broken those commandments, whatever it is, we have become inherently sinful. That's who we are as people prior to Christ or outside of Christ. We have no good standing with God. So let me read the rest of it. Here's the rest of it. Their throat is an open sepulcher, verse 13. With their tongues they've used deceit. The poison of the asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now I want to show you something from verse 10 to about verse uh, 16. You see a natural progression of sinfulness. It starts out inside, comes out through the mouth, and begins to work through the feet. That's the natural progression. Sin is always defined as an inward thing that happens and it manifests outwardly. It's, It's never the other way. What's inside of a man will come out. That's who we are as people. As you get down to verse 18, here's the cause. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And verse 19 gives us the hope. Well, at least the understanding. Here's what it says. Now we know what things that soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Understand that what we're talking about here is the problem of sin and what the law couldn't do. All the law does is show you. It shows you sin. You say, well, what does this have to do with the opening of Romans? So glad you asked. Turn with me back. Back to our passage in chapter 1. Here's what it says. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now wait a second. I thought that the Old Testament and all the prophets and everything were talking about the the law and all those things, and they were. The law was designed and set up specifically so that you could identify how you were before God. You see, everybody has a notion, and we learned this in our uh, evangelism class, of their own goodness. If I were to go up to you on the street and ask you, out of the context of the church and everything, just a plain Jane, if I was just in my street clothes, so to speak, and ask you, are you a good person? You would absolutely, almost all of you, always say yes. 
Because you, 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 you take goodness and you make it relative to everybody you know. I am as good as the next guy. I'll tell you straight up, I'm as good as Tommy is. I'm as good as, as uh, Felix is. I'm as good as anybody else in here, according to my standard of goodness, which is everybody else. But then I have to stop and think, okay, my standard can't be other people here. The standard of goodness has to be higher than that. In fact, let me give you some scripture on that. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. This is toward the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, by the end of it, we're going to get, some, get to the other end of this, but I, I want to stop here in Matthew 5, 20 and read this to you. It says, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed, go outside of, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter in the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's what you got to understand what Jesus just said there. Jesus made a very profound statement. In fact, it was almost, according to the Jew, her heresy. Because here's what he said. He said, your righteousness, in order for you to get to heaven, has to exceed the righteousness of the most righteous people in God's work currently. That's how righteous you have to be in order to obtain heaven. Uh-oh, we're in trouble, aren't we? Well, of course we are, because the standard cannot be everybody else. The standard has to be higher than everybody else. Heaven is perfection. Heaven's where God lives. He, he demands perfection in it. Now, the problem is, is we don't have it. We don't have that kind of righteousness. I know. It's a big problem, and I know all of you are looking at me going, well, what do we do? Well, remember, this is the gospel. Jesus came because of a problem that was found in mankind. In the beginning, Adam walked with God. Now, I don't know what that's like in a, in a physical sense like Adam did, where Adam walks with God and God's standing there and they're just having a great conversation. And there's that, that initial perfection that happens. And then when sin entered in, by the way, do you know what sin is? We defined it a while ago, trespassing of the law. Sin entered into the garden by Adam eating of that forbidden fruit. It was the one fruit that God said, don't eat of. He had one law, only one, to follow, and he broke it. And in doing so, he lost the fellowship with God and became a sinful, fallen creature. Inherently then from Adam, we all inherit that nature. Then we have to be redeemed because it can't be done one person at a time. I mean, uh, multitudes at a time. It can't be done in, in mass like that. It has to be done because we're all individuals, because we are made in the image of God. Every one of us unique. And in the process of that, what happens is we all have to come to salvation individually. Now, I would love to tell you that God says, okay, poof, and you're all saved. I'd love to tell you that's how it happens. But it can't happen according to God's righteousness and holiness that way. Sin has to be atoned for. And then it has to be, that salvation has to be offered and received. It has to happen that way. Because, one, because of the nature of God. Let me explain it to you like this. God will never force salvation on you. He will not make you come to Him. He will offer salvation and you have to receive it. It's just like a gift. I mean, I can give you a gift, but you know what you can do? You can refuse it. Nope. 
In the same way, God does that for us. He says, I'm going to make a way for salvation to, to be attainable, for that perfection to happen, for that righteousness to be imputed to you. I'm going to give it to you freely. But it's going to cost me everything. It's going to cost me my son having to experience a physical death on a cross on your behalf. He's going to pay your fine for your sins. You say, how in the world did you get all that from chapter, chapter 1, verse 1? Or 2, actually. Because it's the gospel. See, the gospel is not just about the love of God. It also has to do with the justice of God. You have to understand that because of the wrath and the justice of God, then on the other side, He can offer love because we need it. But if I offer you a cure and you don't know you've got a disease, it doesn't mean anything to you. If I walked up to you and said, hey, I see that you've got this crazy flesh-eating disease, but you don't think you're sick, my cure's not going to matter to you. You'll just toss it aside. Pay attention here. Now, we, we read that from Matthew, by the way, and I'm going to read part of it again. That except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter in. If you skip to the end of the sermon, in about verse 21 of chapter 7, I'm going to read this to you. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now we've got another problem. There are a lot of people who are religious. Religiosity is, Christianity is eaten up by religiosity. It really is. Christianity was never designed to be a religion. It was supposed to be a relationship with God. And, and really, it is the difference. It, it, it's where God reaches down to man to help him up out of the miry clay, right? But all of our lives, we've been taught that we're supposed to do this, this, and this in order to get to God. What we've done is taken Christianity and make it a religion. That's what we've done with it. But he says here specifically, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that practice lawlessness. That's when you break the commandments. That's when, that's when you say with your mouth that you, you profess God, but you, with, your, with your actions you don't possess God. Big difference between the two. The gospel message is a, an acknowledgement of our sinful state, a need for a Savior, and then God doing all the work of saving us. That's the gospel. What we do is we cut it in half and make it a little easier to swallow. Here's what we do. We say, well, you need is you need Jesus. That's what we tell you. We don't tell you why you need Jesus. We just tell you that you need Him. And if, you, if you'll t accept Jesus and, and take Him, your life will get better. Your life will have joy. Your life will have peace. Your life will, and and we're, we're giving them things on the backside, but not telling them why they need the Savior. So you've got to have the whole gospel. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 that there is none that doeth good. There's none that are righteous. Because there needs to be an understanding of how we are before God outside of Christ. Once we understand how we are, then we make a move and say, you know what, I'm in need of a Savior. 
wonder if there's one out there. God says, yeah, I got one for you. My son Jesus, who lived sinlessly on this earth, born of a virgin, living sinlessly, died at the, uh, on the cross for your sins and mine, and was resurrected the third day so that you might have life eternal. Wow, God did all that for me? Yeah. He did all that so that we might have life eternal. By the way, 1 John tells us very simply and plainly, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. Here's what it says. This then is the message which we've heard of him. Now, they're talking about Jesus. John is specifically writing about Jesus. And declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Basic stuff here. If you say with your mouth that you're walking in light, but your feet and, and body are actually walking in darkness, you are a liar. Let me translate that to spiritual things for you real quick. If you say with your mouth that you belong to the Lord Jesus, but you're practicing the works of darkness with your flesh, you're a liar, and the truth's not in you. And I'll tell you this exactly what that means. That means you don't have salvation. What you have is lip service to God. You have a profession without possession. Okay? A.B. Simpson said this about the gospel. He says, The gospel tells rebellious men that God is reconciled, that justice is satisfied, that sin has been atoned for, that the judgment of the guilty may be revoked, the condemnation of the sinner canceled, the curse of the law blotted out, the gates of hell closed, the portals of heaven opened wide, the power of sin subdued, the guilty conscience healed, the broken heart comforted, the sorrow and misery of the fall undone. Man, what a, what a message the gospel is. When you, when you understand the sinful state of man and his need for salvation and God doing it for him. You see, it makes more sense that way because it's the truth. Now, it's funny. There, there was a debate several years ago. Let me find the names of the people. Uh, a guy by the name of Charles Bradlaugh. He was an avowed atheist. And a preacher by the name of H.P. Uh, Hughes. He was a, a pastor of a London mission church back, at, back years ago. And they had, they had a debate scheduled. And wanted to talk about the merits of salvation. And, and the, the preacher asked for one concession. He said, I want to bring a hundred people to give testimony about the, the saving grace that God has wrought in their lives and what it's done. And I, I'll let you bring a hundred people who say that having no faith at all has helped them that way. And we'll, we'll come to this debate and, and we'll have that debate. And the whole countryside was, was just enthralled with this cup-and-coming de debate that was going to happen between this avowed atheist and this preacher. Well, the day, the day that came, the preacher showed up with his hundred people, and Mr. Bradlaw did not show up at all. And all the atheists of the countryside were there, and they heard testimony from the hundred witnesses, and many were converted that day based on their testimony. The gospel matters. Our stewardship of that gospel matters. Now, let me give you point number one. That was the introduction. Okay? Grab your Bibles. Let's go back to chapter one. First, I want to give you the provisions of the gospel. 
the provisions of the gospel. Now, Paul lays it out succinctly for us. Let's start right here at the top. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. That helps me. I can read now. Which had been promised. Had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now I'm going to stop there for a moment so we can get to all this. First provision is grace. Grace. That's the first provision that's been made for us, is grace. What a wonderful thing grace is. All of you love grace more than you know. Um, I'll, I'll use an example from my own life. The mortgage company gives you a little bit of grace, right? They give you 15, 15 days, roughly, or five days, depending on how your mortgage is set up. And that, that's that grace period is what we call it, where you got, that, you got that little bit of time to be able to get your payment in, whatever. God has measured out grace a little differently than that. God says, I'm going to give you grace at the expense of my son. I'm going to forgive your sins only because my son has paid the price for them. Grace then becomes the gift of God. Let me read it to you. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. You know what we would do? If grace were something that we could go out and earn we would shake our fist back at God and say, you know what, I did this, I don't need you. That's what, if we could earn grace, that's exactly how we would be. Because that's how we are. Let me read the rest of that. For we are His workmanship, now, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That means that after that moment of salvation, where grace has been applied, and you, you understand that gift, you are then created for His work. On purpose. That's why you're a new creation. Give it to you like this. Unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God desires us to walk in, in that grace. And to walk as a create, new, newly created being in that. To do His will. I was talking to somebody earlier. And I, and I said, one of the true understandings of someone who's been born again is an understanding of their submission to God. Because if you, if you find someone who is submitted to God, you will find someone who is not proud. You'll find somebody who's not rebellious. You'll find somebody who is actually out there, seek, not self-seeking, but God-seeking. You'll find that in that person, but it starts with submission. And we don't like submission. We're people who just don't like it. That's our nature. Second provision is apostleship. Now, apostleship is an interesting one because it's, it means one who is sent, an apostle is. You are an ambassador of Christ. The Bible says that, 1 Corinthians, right? <clears throat> Let me give it to you like this. This is from Matthew, from Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 19 says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, Amen. See, that moment was a commission given to the church. The reason I know it was a church is because verse 16 is, says that they went, all went back to a mountain and they worshiped there. They were church. Church means assembly. This assembly then was, was given a commission to go. 
And every assembly after that has been given that same commission to go into the world wherever we're at. When Brother Larry Markham started this church 25 years ago now, it's hard to imagine what would this area was going to be, grow into. And what we're beginning to see is the fruits of that, of that, that initial outpouring here. The idea is, is that we were to take the gospel here and go out with it. You see, every church is an epicenter. The church is designed, the building anyway, is designed in a way so that we can come here, recharge, and go out. Because the church is a people, not a place. We congregate together as a people because the Bible tells us to, because we need the fellowship, the koinonia. But once we leave this place and we go out from here and we're part of the community, that's where we take the gospel. Where that ambassador of Christ is found. And by the way, the idea of that is found in Ephesians again, chapter, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the work, or excuse me, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. You see, God has set up this church in a way that we can help each other. There are those who he's called to leadership in the church. There are those who have called to be part and parcel with, the, with going out into the world. Everybody has a part to play and everybody has a part to do. That's what it means to be a part. By the way, if you're not part of a local New Testament church, go find one to be a part of. And here's, here's what I'm going to tell you. Be a part of the solution in that church and not a part of the hindrance in that church. Uh, here's fine if, you, if this is where God's called you to be, fine. But if God's called you to be somewhere else and, and to, to minister somewhere else, go. Because those leaders in that place are set up specifically to train you so that you can go out into the world. By the way, I need to read the rest of that. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come into unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here's what that says. You're a part of that local body so that it's, it's a matter of understanding and becoming full into the full stature of who you are in Christ. The idea is perfecting of the saints. When will you be perfected? Not till heaven. So keep trying. That's what we always do. We strive for it. Here's, here's what happens in most cases. Most people come into a church and they say, oh, I'm not going to get involved or, or maybe I'll get involved for a little while. And they start to work in the church and they figure out everybody here is just so human. Oh. And they roll their eyes and they, they throw a little fit and they say, I'm done with the church. Be careful with that. Because that's what you're saying about Christ's wife. You going to talk about another man's wife that way? It's fighting words where I'm from. Here's the thing. You don't get that privilege. You know what happens in those, in those moments when that happens? They're all human. Give them a little more grace. What happens when you mess up and they, they say, oh, oh, tables are turned now, right? But why don't they give you a little bit of grace? They probably will. They're just people. Church is people, not a place. Got to think of it that way. We've lost a little bit of that in corporate ecclesiology. We've, we've been thinking about it a little wrong. Church is supposed to be a family. You know, my kids mess up. I got three of them. They're all here. They mess up from time to time. 
I can give them grace or I can be an ugly taskmaster. Sometimes I'm really, sometimes I don't learn and I become that taskmaster. Sometimes I just back up and I say, you know what? I got to give them grace. They're family. That's what church is supposed to be, right? All right. I've, I've digressed a little bit here. Let me give you number two, point number two this morning. The proclamation and the, let me get that right, and the purpose of the gospel. Now, number two is an interesting one. Number two is one of those that most of us know, but we don't do. It's the one where, where we say, well, that's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm not supposed to proclaim the gospel. Yeah, that's really not going to work here. Uh, for what you got going on. Let's start with the proclamation. We're called first to be obedient. Let me go back to our passage. Here's what it says. And declared to be the Son of God, verse 4, with power, according to the Holy uh, Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead, by whom we've all received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. By the way, somebody made mention of this Thursday night. I want to talk about it real quick. It seems as though other religions around the world seem to be a little more forthright in what they believe. But Christians seem to be not so much. Because we've been told all of our lives that we shouldn't, we, we shouldn't uh, you know, uh, force feed people uh, the gospel. I'm not interested in force feeding them, but I'm not interested in shutting my mouth and not telling them either. There is a difference, you know. I, I'm not making anybody go and be baptized. I'm not making anybody pro profess Christ. That's not what I'm about. I'm not interested in shoving a religion down your throat. I'm interested in showing you a relationship with God. And I have to tell you, that's what we do. As, as Christians, we are to tell people. We are to proclaim. Part of that is obedience. You know, when people see us acting different, because we're trying to live holy, they think, well, they're just thinking they're better than us, trying to live holier than thou. Uh, okay. I'm not better, but I'm trying. I want to be better. The Bible says if I, if I follow God's precepts, God's got a plan and all that. I'm just trying to live the scriptures that I, I'm, I'm supposed to proclaim because I'm a believer. People are going to fault you no matter what you do. Might as well follow God and let, let that go. I learned a long time ago, I can't be everything people want me to be. I can be what God's called me to be. I can do my best to live according to the scriptures. And, and as I see them and, and as, as God has revealed them to me out of his word, I, I, I do them. I'm trying to be obedient to them. But I've learned that I will never please everybody. Otherwise, you'd have a thinner preacher. One with more hair, better teeth, you know. And he'd have a whole lot better voice and a whole lot better presentation. But I can't please everybody. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just trying to please God, and that's really all I stand, stand up here with. I bring the Word of God to you so you can see it for yourselves. Paul was that guy who was obedient. Let me give it to you from James chapter 2. James chapter 2 says in verse 18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. You see, 
once we've been born again, the natural thing then after that is to do the works that God's called us to do. The problem is everybody else tells us not to do them. Oh, that's for somebody else to do. Oh, really? You're going you're gonna, to, what are you going to do? Go to church every time the doors are open? Uh-huh. I, why wouldn't I? I, I? I meet with the fellowship and the, and the fellowship of the saints as often as I can because I'm hoping that one of you guys actually has a, has a, can help me out here. You see, we need each other because we've, we've been born by that same spirit. We need it. The gospel message must go from us. Who's going to take it to them? Uh, are, are you waiting for some guy on TV to do it? Are you waiting for the next Billy Graham to show up? You know, here's, here's the thing. I, I'm, I'm not waiting on Billy Graham to show up again. Billy Graham did a great thing in his, in his day and was doing a great work preaching and, and, and all over the world. Billions upon billions of people have heard the gospel message because of Billy Graham. How many have heard him because of you? How many of you have, have taken the time to give the gospel to somebody, to tell somebody how, how they're steeped in sin and they're in need of a Savior and then offer them the Savior? How many of you have gone through that with somebody? See, well, you, I, I've not been called to preach. Well, okay, but you've been called as, as a saint and an ambassador of Christ to tell others. You don't have to have a pulpit to do that. I, I'm very thankful. God's called me to do this, and that's what I do. What's God called you to do? Well, I know He's called you to give away the gospel. Because the Bible tells us so. Secondly, the purpose. This is an easy one. It's for His glory. You see, the purpose of, of, of the gospel is His glory. It's not complicated. But, but here's, what we, here's what we struggle with. We, because we struggle with obedience, we struggle with Him getting glory in, it's because we're not doing it. It's kind of a catch-22. He can't get glory if we're not doing it. It's kind of where that is. You say, well, God can get glory in anything. Then I'm just going to sit here on the, on the couch at the house. Or I'm going to go out and fish in the lake. That's going to give God glory. I can give God glory in everything I do. Can you? Do you? See, the better question there is, do you? Oh, a lot of us claim it. Now, look, I, I understand that we're humans and we, we have our little idiosyncrasies and we do things. But on the whole, you ought to be known as a believer in Jesus Christ as one who gives the gospel away to people. You ought to be talking about Jesus. You may not be able to present the gospel in, in, the, in the best way or whatever, but you've got a testimony of salvation, and if you can use that testimony, somebody might hear that and get saved. It's your testimony. It's not mine. Everybody's got a different one. Everybody's got a different way, that, but they all came the same way by the cross and how Christ saved them out of whatever. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's about His glory. 
every time. Psalm 96.7 says, Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Man, it ought to be about every part of you wanting to give glory to God. That's the Christian life. And see, we, we tell other people so that God might get more glory. We reveal truth to people so they might reveal truth to other people eventually. And this perpetuates. Because I want, I would love for everybody in the world to get saved. But I can't make them. I can't shove my religion. It wouldn't do any good anyway. If I shoved religion down people's throats, they would resent it and reject it anyway in their hearts, and it would be useless. You can't legislate it. You can't make people do it. I've discovered that. The harder you press people to do something, the less likely they are to do it. I know because I'm a man in my own house. My wife asks me, but she'll remind me often that something needs to be done. My wife's learned that if she'll tell me once and then I get busy and do something and maybe a, uh, if it has to be done at a certain time, she'll, she'll tell me closer to that time and I'll go, yeah, you know what, I didn't get to that. But if she's constantly right there nagging me, going, got to get that done. Hey, you need to get that done. Did you get that done today? Wish you had that done today. I sure wish we had that done. You know what I would do? I ain't doing it. Because that's how we are. And that's how people are. You cannot force the gospel on them, but I can tell them the gospel. What they do with it is their business. And I want it to be that they would accept Christ because they need a Savior, but I can't make them do it. But I am supposed to tell them. All right, I need to move on. i got one more point. This is point number three. Point number three. There's a, a story about, uh, and let me, let me give it to you real quick. Um, did he put it up there already? He's waiting on me to say it. Good job. This is the privileges of the gospel. The privileges. Let me tell you the story real quick. There was a, 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 about, a about a couple who took their, their son and their daughter into Carlsbad Caverns. Anybody been to Carlsbad? A few of you. Good. Uh, we, I haven't been out there to be in Carlsbad. I go over here. What's the name of this one over here we go to all the time? Or used to? What was it? What? Blanchard Springs Caverns. Okay, so at these caverns, though, they take you down into the bottom of this cavern. Now, deep, deep, deep down in the earth, no light, complete darkness. So he's got his, uh, this, this man and this woman have this boy and girl down there with them, and they turn out the lights, the deepest point in there, and, and they, the kids begin to cry. And they said, don't cry. Somebody, know, somebody here knows how to turn on the lights. Can I tell you that's the way the gospel is? The world is stuck in darkness that they can't comprehend. They've been in it so long that they, they've, they walk around in it. And, and it's part of them. It's part of who they are. And, and there's a sudden realization when, when they begin to understand they've been in darkness. Because they get a little bit of illumination and they go, Huh. That light's amazing. You know what one candle can do in a dark place? You can see it. If you turned out every light, there was no light being able to get in this building, which would be tough to do with all the windows we got. And we shut off all the lights in here, and there was no light 
But we put a light right up here where everybody could see that one light. Everybody's eyes in the place to be focused on it. That's how the gospel works. When we bring light, because that's who we are, we're salt and light, to dark places, there is, there is something that happens to people who've been walking in darkness. Now I want to give you some scripture here real quick. Take a look, uh, beginning in verse uh, 6. Among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. I'm going to focus there for a second. First privilege, you are the beloved of God. Man, that's exciting. Because, look, my wife loves me, but sometimes she doesn't like me. I get it. I get it. I love my children, die for my children. Sometimes I don't like them. It's just the way it is. But we are called the beloved of God because God loves with a love we can't. God loves with a perfect love. And when you're called the beloved of God, do you know he has your best interests at heart? It's as though you, you have that perfect father who's looking out for you all the time. Now you say, well, if, if he's looking out for me, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, hang on. You don't know everything. He does. And there's a distinction there. You're not all-knowing, but he is. And he, what you're going through here may help here. What you're going through over there may help someone else over there. All these things are, are, are coming together. Now, you have to read the rest of Romans to get that, particularly Romans chapter 8 regarding that. But one thing that we notice is having that privilege of being beloved gives us something that everybody else can't get. People in the world have no concept when we say beloved of God. They've got no idea what that looks like. But we have to be careful with it because it can be misused as much as anything else. Let me give you some scripture to help you here. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now pay attention to the love of God and how it works. First, working in salvation, because when we were sinners against God, God's working and says, I still love you anyway, and I'm going to give you salvation. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. You know, God didn't have to do it. God didn't owe us salvation. He didn't owe it to us. But He gave it to us anyway. Here in His love, verse 10 says, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. Now that's a big fancy King James word for atonement. Blood atonement in particular. A propitiation. A payment for sin. Secondly, we're called. Now the word called there is a, an actual acronym for chosen. We've been chosen for something here. Now to be chosen is, is particularly a big deal. Now, I know that they don't play this anymore. Does anybody remember playing any kind of team sport in school? 
there were those who were chosen first and those who had to be chosen last. Right? I was the guy last until I, till I outgrew some things and figured out how to handle myself. In that process of elimination, I, I'm going to use dodgeball because they don't play dodgeball anymore. Uh, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I just heard a report that some Canadian study up in Canada, you know, they've got it all figured out up there, that dodgeballs hurts people's psyches. I know what it hurts. It ain't my psyche. <laughs> Dodgeball was like the worst, right? Because you, you had your choice. You, do you want the big guy who can throw hard and aim really well, or do you want the little guy who was nimble, right? I was neither. So I was just a big fat kid. And, and I was chosen last almost every time. But what I learned was how to use the ball to help me. We'll talk about that later. But being chosen is something very special. I remember when I went from, in baseball, now this is a, it's a team thing, I'm telling you. I went from center field to first base. Can I tell you what that did for me? Coach chose me. Now, it, it wasn't because, look, first two years was my dad. Uh, I was playing center field. I was the coach's kid, and I was playing center field. Now, who, what position does the coach's kid play? Pitcher or catcher sometimes. If he, if he really can't pitch, they'll, they'll put him as catcher. Two most important positions on the team. Where did I get stuck? Center field. Sometimes left field. Two years I spent there. A little resentful, just telling you. Third year, I got, uh, we were having baseball tryouts uh, for a particular team, and I, I wanted to play, and uh, coach asked, asked everybody what positions they played. I didn't say anything. He said, well, we're going we're gonna to try everybody out and see how they do, and they threw every kind of throw you can possibly imagine at me. I caught everything. I got first base. I can't tell you what it meant to be chosen for that position. Can I tell you now that God has chosen you for a position in his kingdom? He's chosen you to be part of what his work is doing. Here's, here's what happens, though, with people who get chosen and don't appreciate that choice. They sit around and they, they like to sit on their laurels, so to speak. Here's how that works. I know I've been chosen by God. Boy, isn't that great. Oh, I don't want to tell anybody because this place will be full of other chosen people and then I, I won't be so chosen anymore. But see, the ones who understand, if you've ever had any kind of leadership, what happens is when you bring more people in, bigger things happen. More things happen. It's not about be, sitting on your by and by, but it's about being chosen and understanding that you have responsibilities with that being chosen. Let me give it to you like this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. I want you to see it in the scriptures. Here it is. But ye are chosen. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. See, you've gone from, from nobody to somebody that quick. There you go. Get a better snap. But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now, this is what bothers a lot of people about Christianity, by the way. 
Because most people who, they want salvation, but they really don't want to be peculiar. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to be outside the norm of society. Can I tell you, here's what I've learned in, oh, let's see, I'm 46, 22 years. Is that about right? Am I close? 26 years, 27 years, sorry, 27 years. I carried, yeah, okay. In 27 years, here's what I've learned. I don't care what everybody else is doing. I don't. I purposely will go the wrong way in a crowd. That's how weird I am. How many of you, step, when you step on an elevator, step in and turn around and try to get to the back wall if it's empty? If it's not empty, you'll, you'll stand to one side if you can, or you'll, but you always turn around and face the doors, right? I don't do that. What are you doing, preacher? I walk in and I just stand there right in the doorway with my back to the doors and my face to everybody else in there. Well, do I care what they think? Not really. I'm going to see them for what? 20 seconds? It's a great opportunity to give the gospel. They want out so fast you can't... They'll, tramp, they'll, they'll run over you trying to get out of you, trample over you. But here's the thing. We don't have to fit in the crowd because we don't belong in the crowd. Christianity has called us out of the crowd and into His purposes. Scripture right there says a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained it. See, you're different. It's crazy. Last thing. Not only, let me go back and make sure I got everything. Yeah. We're beloved of God. We're called or chosen and then finally, we're saints. Now, this one's a little weird for us. Because most of us who are believers don't really think in the terms like they did the saints. Because the saints, in our minds, are people who have obtained some kind of perfection spiritually. And that's what we think of. Well, we didn't obtain it. It was given to us. And it's not that we're perfect, but we're striving. You see, sainthood is not about, uh, not about what you do. It's about who you know. It's about who you know. You know what makes you a saint? Being a follower of Jesus Christ. He's called you out. Let's read the introduction real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, just three verses. He says this, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. It's not complicated. It's just hard because we don't consider ourselves in that position. See, positionally, we've already been made to be in holy places in Christ. That's positionally. Now, practically, we're working that out. That's just the nature of it. I still live in the fleshly body. My body still has desires of its own. I, I desire to be in heaven. I desire to be with Christ. But there is that part of me that still lives here. Pilgrim passing through. I have certain things that go on that I, I need things and things like that that my body desires. But here's the problem. When those earthly desires overtake the spiritual ones, we run into problems. And that's why we don't call ourselves saints is because we've, we, we're, we're not trying to get out of that. What we're doing is trying to live here and be normal with everybody else. 
one of the worst things I've ever heard about modern Christianity, I heard it a few years ago, was that there are churches out there, and I, it's, it's not anybody we know, okay? We'll just say that, right? There are churches out there that are trying to be more like the world. They're, they're bringing in all the things of the world so that they might entice the world in rather than being different from the world and helping them bring them into the fold of Christ. And what that looks like is this. They're going out there and they're saying, we've got to be dark like the world in order to win the world. When Christ says, you're salt and light, a city on a hill can't be hid. If you're, if you're salt and light, you're, you're going to bother people. The two things I know about salt and light. Salt irritates when it, when it gets in cuts and things like that. It's an irritant. Light is an irritant as well. It's a disinfectant in that way. I know that when I turn on the lights when the kids are all asleep, they get mad at me. My wife too. They don't like the light. The light hurts. People in darkness don't like light. You can't win them out of darkness with darkness. You are called to be a saint. That's one of the perks. Now, what will you do with the gospel? What will you do? Will you be an ambassador of Christ that you've been called to be? And take the whole gospel. I'm talking about you've got to explain the wrath of God to them, understand, help them understand sin and where they are in it, and then bring them to Christ and the love of God on the other side. It takes both sides because you've got to get them lost before you can ever get them saved because they don't know anything else. They think they're fine. Our responsibility as believers in Jesus Christ is just like the Apostle Paul's. Taking the gospel everywhere we go. Let's stand. Father, as we come before you today, help us. Help us to take the gospel everywhere we go. To be the ambassador that you've called us to be. To be the saint that you've called us to be. Help us, Lord. We want to enjoy the perks. But Lord, help us to understand our purpose. Help us, Lord. We are in desperate need of guidance here when it comes to giving the gospel away. Help us to do that. Maybe it's just a testimony. Maybe it's just a card. Maybe it's just this or just that. But help us, Lord, to take the gospel everywhere we go. We'll be sure and give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name.